Okay, the teaching text from today comes from Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks. You can be seated. If you've been here for a little bit, I divulged a couple of weeks ago, which you probably already knew, which is that I am a nerd. I was, uh, like two weeks ago, I was in the middle of the Fellowship of the Ring, the Lord of the Rings series. Anybody else want to admit that they love him? Okay, thank you, because it's brilliant. He's brilliant, Tolkien. Well, I'm in the middle of Two Towers now, and, uh, which is also fantastic. I, I wrote a lot of my notes, and, and I found that like I was getting too long, and I was editing again, and I found I included way too many names of Lord of the Rings characters. And I was going to lose you when I talked about the Mines of Moria and Gimli, Son of Glowin, and, you know, Galadriel and all of that. So I'm not mentioning any of those. But uh, there's this one part in the Two Towers where there's a great mystery about how the bad guys are all communicating with one another. And it turns out they've got this crystal ball kind of thing, the name of which is not important, and it would, the memory of which would like, like divulge my nerdity even further. But they have this crystal ball kind of thing, and the good guys discover this is how the bad guys have been communicating. That there was some kind of deep magic that these people created these tools so that, so that people, allies, could communicate at a great distance. And so, you know, the, the leaders of this country would have one, the leaders of this group would have one. And I realized, like, oh, they're just talking about telephones. They have telephones. And it was funny, uh, you know, reading the book, as far as I know, Middle Earth is not a part of our common history. Um, but it occurred to me that in all of human history, like if we had this tool, this tool right here, people would think that we are magicians. We have superpowers in our pockets, in our telephone. We've got these amazing capabilities. I've got an app called Find My Friends. I can know where at least Emily's phone is all the time. There are a couple more people in this room. We follow each other. I'm not going to say who, okay? It's a security breach. But uh, I've got Find My Friends. I've got FaceTime, which is amazing. When I would travel, take courses for seminary, I would FaceTime the little kids, and I'm thousands of miles away, and I can look into the face of my children. This is magic. At any other time in history, the luxuries that we enjoy every single day would be considered pure magic. It's beyond uh, our comprehension. It's something that we uh, certainly take for granted. 
We've got drones that can inspect buildings so people don't have to like rappel down and dangerous things. You could, we could all list like our favorite luxury technology item. Uh, we're improving at everything as a species. We're getting better at everything. We're getting smarter at everything. We're, we're improving wildly on, in almost every field except for one thing. We're not getting better at being humans. We're not getting better at being well. We're not getting better as a society as a whole of producing men and women who are characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Instead, we're more anxious, we're more stressed, we're more depressed, we're more angry, we're more fearful, we're more tribalistic. On the whole, we're less confident, less happy, less united, less peaceful, less content, less loving. We're getting better at absolutely everything except the one thing that you would hope that we would be good at after all these years, which is being well as humans, as men and women who are created in the image of God. And in the din of all of the voices and noises and opinions about what does it take to have a flourishing life and how do we make sense of this confusing like conundrum of an existence, we hear the still and steady voice of Jesus posing the question to us that he first asked a paralyzed man in John chapter 5 when he asked him, do you want to be well? God takes human dignity and human uh, uh, desire so seriously that when Jesus sat by a man who very clearly needed healing, he still asked him the question about whether that was in line with his own intentions. He said, do you want to be well? Is that your ambition? And then Jesus extends this open invitation to all of us in Matthew chapter 11. This is Matthew eleven twenty-eight. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now look at this. Come. This is an active verb. Exercise your will. Use your energy to head my direction. Come. Make a choice. So to me, it's, it's the, the direction to, toward wellness is toward Jesus. Come. Exercise your energy and your will. Coming in my direction. Head toward me, says Jesus. And who is given this invitation? All of you who are weary and burdened, the people who are stressed out, the people who are emotionally exhausted, the people who are spiritually spent, all of you who find yourselves in that category, there's an invitation by Jesus, head my direction, come, exercise your will in my direction, come to me. And what does he offer is rest, rest. It's not shalom, but it's a cessation of labor. You've ever worked really, really hard, you're sweating your guts out, and you sit down, you get a cold Gatorade or a water or something, you get a cessation from labor, oh, it's so refreshing. Or you've been in a season maybe with little kids where you're just working your buns off, and you get a night without them, or, or, or you've been, you know, it's the end of finals, or you know what it's like to feel the relief from working your butt off. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are worn out, and I'll be the one who gives you rest. And then he says this in the next verse, take my yoke upon you. A yoke is like something cattle would wear. You know, they're used to doing hard labor. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle. God is saying this. The second person of the Trinity is identifying in this way. I am gentle and humble in heart and with me you'll find rest for your souls. Another active invitation, take my yoke, link up with me. 
It's a, you know, a beast of burden would wear something heavy, or maybe you know what it's like to just feel the heaviness of, of maybe it's your own legalism or your own desire to be perfect and to be well. You're working so hard in life, and you're exhausted. Your back is bending underneath the pressure. Jesus says, come to me, take my yoke, and I will give you rest. The kind of work I want to give you to do is restful. My burden is light. My yoke is easy, so come, come to me. And it gives that second offer of finding rest for your soul. In September, uh, we're, for four weeks, we're talking about this theme of learning to be well. If it's something we could learn on our own or figure out on our own, we would have by now, and we haven't. So we're learning from Jesus, responding to this invitation of learning to be well. And each week, we're going to study a different practice, albeit sometimes unconventional ones, in this quest of learning to be well. And today we're talking about presence versus escapism. This is probably the most like fuzzy of all of the practices we're gonna talk about, the most like in need of defining terms, but presence versus escapism. By presence, here's what I mean. By presence, I mean the ability to be fully aware and mindful and alert to what's going on. If I'm present to myself, I know what I'm thinking. I know what I'm feeling. I know my, my needs or my goals. I'm present to myself. If I'm present to God, I'm, I'm, God knows me. I'm available. I'm vulnerable before God, and I'm, I'm getting to know God. We have, uh, we have time together. There's prayer. There's listening. And then there's, there's uh, being present to others, being fully with who I'm with. So, Jason, like, I'm completely in the room with you right now. You share a meal with somebody, you're not always confident. Like, their brain is somewhere totally else. Being fully present with the people that we're physically present with. Um, so that's presence. presence. Presence to self, presence to God, presence to others. Being fully aware of what's going on in the situation. By escapism, on the other hand, I mean the tendency to avoid being present to self and to God and to others. Escapism is the tendency to avoid being present uh, to self, to God, and to others. And we, we practice escapism through a variety of behaviors that are sometimes learned and sometimes unconscious. A couple different categories of these. One uh, would be numbing behaviors. Numbing behaviors. These are the things in life that we lean on to help take the edge off, okay? Um, they're, they're, they're obvious things. There's, there's substances. Um, uh, I just realized we have all the kids in the room. Let me name all of the, like, non-adult. <laughs> hey, all the kids in the room, go like this for one second, okay? You can fill in the blank. There are behaviors that help us numb and, and desensitize to the pain that we feel in life. They take the edge off. There are distracting behaviors, and this can be really deceptive. You can be distracted, escape, you know, the pains and the, the feelings, the reality of life through achievement, through busyness, by being constantly with other, others and never alone with your own thoughts, uh, distract through just consumption. Uh, I think probably the biggest uh, opportunity for distraction or numbing, which I'll talk about later, is social media. Is, is our use of, of the internet and technology. We, have, we escape through denial. We just pretend there's nothing wrong. La, 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 la. We put our head in the sand. It's positivity. It's pretending problems don't exist. There are sometimes religious versions of this that are just like 
totally not in touch with reality. We feel like it's a lack of faith to name like a question or a doubt or a problem we have. Uh, this, is, this is not right. There are, there's a repressing. It's just shoving it all down. You remember the Seinfeld? Uh, serenity now. Serenity now. And the lesson was serenity now, insanity later. Um, and then there's, there's finally just detaching, which is, uh, if any of you are familiar with the Enneagram, that's me. That's, I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm, that's the word I'm looking for, temperamentally inclined toward trying to detach. I just don't want to be affected. So I keep my own scary thoughts at bay. I don't want to deal with conflict. I don't want to deal with, with, with questions because those unsettle the balance within. All of these things are forms of escapism, things that keep us, though that we, we resort to to keep us from being fully present to ourselves, fully present to our creator, and fully present to one another. Now, the thing is, escapism is, is on the whole, not all bad. Like, we need to catch our breath sometimes. Uh, you have a scary thought or you've just been working hard. Like, you need to catch your breath or we can't bear up under the weight of life. But I'm not talking about occasional escapism, having a drink once in a while or what, like, like fill in the blank for you. I'm not talking about the, the, the dangers of occasional escapism. What I'm talking about is the danger to our soul for habitual escapism. We are the least present, least aware, least reflective, least mindful generation in history. Uh, habitual escapism is the American default. We've got limitless access to information, to stimulation, on-demand everything. We are everywhere in the world all at once except for right here, right now except for in this moment with the people in this room and the presence of our Creator. Um, we're addicts of escapism, and we have no idea how to quit. How many of you have felt like at times like, oh my goodness, like I wish I could quit looking at my phone? And not like, I should probably quit. Like, I can't stop. Try and go an hour. Try and go two hours. Try and go three hours. How many of you have the phantom vibration in your pocket? You're so accustomed to having the phone with you that like you... Oh, nothing, nothing. I, I felt at that time. We're, we're addicts of escapism in its various forms that we don't know how to be right here, right now. Uh, many of you, I imagine, have read um, from Brene Brown, who's written a bunch of great stuff. Or maybe you've seen her TED Talk. And uh, this is from her book, The Gifts of Imperfection. She said, three observations about escapist behaviors. One, most of us engage in behaviors, consciously or not, that help us to numb or take the edge off of vulnerability and pain and discomfort. Two, addiction can be described as chronically and compulsively numbing and taking the edge off of feelings. If those, those prickly feelings happen just so regularly that we habitually use something to numb it, that's the definition of addiction, she says. Three, we cannot selectively numb emotions. When we numb the painful ones, we also numb the positive emotions. And then she goes on. She says the most powerful emotions that we experience have very sharp points like a tack, like the tip of a thorn. And when they prick us, they cause discomfort and pain. Just the anticipation or fear of these feelings can trigger intolerable vulnerability in us. We know it's coming. 
To many of us, our first response to vulnerability and pain of these sharp points is not to lean into the discomfort, but to go to all of these numbing behaviors that we've already talked about that are like adult ears, okay? But she says there's no such thing as selective numbing. There's a full spectrum of human emotions, and when we numb the dark, we also numb the light. Joy is as thorny and sharp as any of the dark emotions. To love someone fiercely, to believe in something with your whole heart, to celebrate a fleeting moment in time, to fully engage or be present in a life that doesn't come with guarantees. These are risks that involve vulnerability and often pain. And when we lose our toleration for discomfort and resort to escapism, we also lose joy. And all of this takes us to Jesus, sitting in the garden, weeping. Jesus knows what's coming. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. He has shared the Last Supper with the disciples. He has predicted to them his death. Judas has left uh, he and the others to go and, and find the religious leaders who are to arrest him and lead him to crucifixion and public humiliation. And here is Jesus in the garden. It's a really vulnerable moment. We get the sense Jesus, I mean, we're talking the second person of the Trinity, fully God and fully human. Jesus doesn't want to be alone. He calls the 11 to be with him. He calls the three, Peter, James, and John, his closest buddies, to be even closer. And he, he can't be, he's scared to be alone. He wants to have his buddies with him. And Jesus is in this really vulnerable moment. His feelings were so intense that he told the disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's fully present to himself. He knows what he's thinking, feeling. He can name it. And he's present to his friends. This is what's going on with me, guys. Could you hang with me for a little bit? And he takes that self-knowledge and he takes that God, that, that, that awareness that he has with his friends into the presence of his father. He brings the pain that is excruciating, so excruciating that Luke said that when Jesus sweated, it was as if he were sweating drops of blood. He took that self-knowledge into the presence of his father where he named it and he sought consolation and help. He kept going back to his friends, like, could you pray? Could you, could you just pray for me? Could you pray for me? And while Jesus is in the throes of this uh, emotional uh, storm, what are his disciples doing? They're sleeping. They're sleeping. They're asleep. And this is, this is a metaphor. They're, they're distant. They're escaping from the grief and the horror and the, you know, the regret, perhaps, of this moment. And they're asleep to all of it. And the God presence of mind and Jesus' own self-awareness enabled him after this to be fully present to the task that had been prepared for him by his Father since the creation of the world. When he would ascend the cross and die for the disciples who would quickly thereafter deny him and those who would crucify him. He was present to himself. He was present to his Father and he was prepared to be present for the task that was laid out for him when he would give his life for the life of the world for you and me. Jesus had learned the art and the discipline of choosing presence over escapism by practice, by practice. In the Gospels, and particularly Mark, it's almost comical how often Jesus is retreating away from everybody else. He's going to pray, 
He's going to think. He's withdrawing. He see, in Mark, he seems like, like a serial introvert who just has to get, which comforts me as a serial introvert. I could justify my solitude biblically. Jesus is always retreating. Before the launch of his ministry, after success in ministry, before and after pain, when the crowds were pursuing him, Jesus brought his self-knowledge to the Father, and he also got his self-knowledge from the Father. He was present to himself, present to his creator, present not to his creator, that's heresy, present to uh, his Father, so that he could be present to his disciples and to the crowds. By being self-present in God-presence, he had a presence to offer other people. He learned the art of choosing presence over escapism through solitude and through silence, which he practiced habitually. Dallas Willard uh, wrote this in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, talking about solitude and silence. He said, solitude and silence give us space to reform, to change our inmost attitudes. They take the world off of our shoulders for a time and they interrupt our habit of constantly managing things, of being in control or thinking that we are. If you can lay down your ideas of what solitude and silence are supposed to accomplish, well, what's it going to do if I go sit in a room all by myself? If you can lay down your ideas of what solitude and silence are supposed to accomplish in your spiritual growth, you will discover incredibly good things. One is that you have a soul. Another, that God is near and the universe is brimming with goodness. Another, that others aren't quite as bad as you often think. But don't try to discover these things, or you won't. You'll be just as busy and find more of your own business. The cure for too much to do is solitude and silence. For there you find you are safely more than what you do. And the cure for loneliness is solitude and silence. For there you discover in how many ways you are never alone. And this is the last little bit here. He said, you'll know this finding of the soul and God is happening by an increased sense of who you are. You know your own identity, your worth. And a lessening of the feeling that you have to do this and that and the other thing that harassing, hovering feeling of have to largely comes from that vacuum in your soul where you ought to be at home with our Father in His kingdom. Jesus learned the art and the discipline of choosing presence over escapism by solitude and silence in the presence of His Father. Jesus learned to cultivate this over time Jesus was the most emotionally healthy person who has ever lived. He was the most comfortable in his skin person who has ever lived. And so if we want to be well, if we want to flourish, we would do well to follow the example of Jesus so that we can learn to be present to ourselves, present to our Father, our Creator, and present to each other. But first we have to confront our desire to escape. Why is that? We have to ask ourselves some questions. This is the part of the sermon where things get slightly uncomfortable if you actually entertain the things that I'm talking about. But the road to health, to soul health and wellness and maturity often begins with a short-term period of intense pain. 
If you want to get to the other side and begin the road to recovery, to being well, it often starts with an intense period of chronic pain, and you have to embrace it. Some questions for you to reflect on, for us to reflect on. When are the times that you feel yourself wanting to escape, not to be present? You're at a family gathering, perhaps, and your mom starts saying that thing. It's like, okay, where is my escape device? It's always moms. God bless moms. It's not always moms. When are the times that you most want to escape? When is there something that puts you ill at ease on the inside? Uh, What feelings are the scariest to you that make you want to press the panic button? What are your go-to escaping behaviors? I know for me, at the end of the day, I'm worn out. I'm emotionally worn out. Go home, and bedtime and bath time is really fun and, and really, really like tiring. It's like, okay, we need to be done for the day. I'll find myself, while the house is destroyed, while my children are running amok, going back to the bedroom and checking Instagram right then. Why does that make sense? It's because I want to escape. I'm feeling overwhelmed in my soul. There's something like, and it's something that's bigger than just like I'm annoyed. It's I'm not enough as a human being. I can't do this. I need like to press pause. And we all want to press pause. When are those times when you want to escape? They're often more serious or more sinister than that. Um, What are your go-to escaping behaviors? And it may be that you can process these questions. And by the way, I think these are like, critical questions to be well. It may be that you can process them on your own and you're like the most mature person I've ever met. It may be that you can process them with other people. It may very likely be that you need to go to therapy. And I go to therapy. I've gone to therapy. It's a good thing. It may be like the healthiest thing a bunch of Christians can do. Destigmatize it. It's okay. Get help. Talk about stuff. That's how we get healthy. As you name those triggers, ask God to join you in that discomfort and to help you to learn to be well. And then I want to just like pepper at you some some encouragements for what it looks like to live a deeply present life, choosing presence over escapism. The first one is obvious. I've just named it. Learn to practice silence and solitude. There's some great books out there. Uh, Sacred Rhythms by Ruth Haley Barton is a good one. Uh, Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard is, is anything by Dallas Willard is a good one to help you. Journal and pray. There are apps out there like um, that can like ask you questions to help you like develop your self knowledge so you can like bring those discoveries into the presence of the Father. Share meals with other people without technology present. Learn to look each other in the face. It's uncomfortable. It can be very uncomfortable to just look a person in the face and not look away. Well, don't be creepy, Jason. This entire sermon is all about you, Jason. Uh, Have a meal with each other without tech present. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Ruthlessly eliminate hustle from your life. Get into the habit of asking yourself and other people really, really great questions. And then I think... For the majority of people in this room, in the year 2018, probably the most important encouragement I can give, uh, well, I'll give it to you after this. Who knows who this guy is? Does anybody remember? What's that? 
Why aren't you saying the whole thing? It's too high. That's correct. In 2010, Jimmy McMillan ran for governor in New York, and he had a very simple platform. The rent is too high. The rent is too high. And a very simple platform, but it was memorable. I think probably the most important encouragement that I could give in the spirit of Jimmy McMillan here is get off your phone. Get off your phone. Adam is, is giving me the thumbs up here. Get off your phone. Stop it. Regulate it. We are addicts and we all know it. We get annoyed when we see it in other people, but a mirror is staring right back at us. We are cultivating a generation of narcissists. It's not normal. It's not okay. And it's keeping us from being deeply present to ourselves, to our creator, and to everybody around us. There's a, a, a lady named Renee Robinson. This is how I'm closing. Is, uh, wrote a blog article a handful of years ago that got a bunch of acclaim. And she wrote it as a letter to her sons about how they were managing technology in their homes. And, uh, and, and some of you may feel a little prodded. Know that as I'm reading this, I'm feeling like shame a little bit for myself. This is a, like I would say I, I have addictive behaviors with technology. So this is, this is actively something I'm working to confront in my life. But Renee Robinson wrote this letter to her children about how they manage technology. And it has some deep wisdom for all of us on the road to being well, on choosing presence versus escapism. So here's the letter. Dear boys, do you remember the day we went to the drugstore and the lady said, wow, you're the first kids I've seen all day with nothing in your hands? Remember how she marveled at how you didn't need an electronic device to carry through the store? I know how her words made you feel. I know how it reminded you that you're different because your mom limits your electronic usage. I know it was yet another reminder. The same reminder you receive when we're out to eat and you notice all the kids playing their phones and iPads instead of talking to their parents. I know it was a reminder of all the sporting events where you feel you're the only kids whose parents are making them cheer on their siblings rather than burying themselves in a phone. I know it was another reminder to you that you feel different than the electronic age in which we live. Well, boys, it's not you. It's me. Me being selfish, maybe. You see, I can't bear to miss a moment with you. Let me explain. I want to talk to you when we're out to eat. I want to listen to your questions. I want to have training opportunities. I want to allow space for conversation that can take us deeper. And if you're always distracted with electronics, well, I might miss those moments. I could give you all the statistics about how damaging it is to your development, to your attention span, your ability to learn. And while all of those are valid reasons to keep electronics away, that's not my primary reason why I say no to you so much. It's much more than that. Much more. I need you to understand this. When we're together, think about presence versus escapism. Don't get lost in the parenting thing. Presence versus escapism. When we're together, I want all of you the fullness of you. I want to experience you, ex truly experience you. And I can't do that with you when there's an electronic device between us. You see, it acts as a barrier. I want to see what, what brings life to those eyes. I want to watch the wonder and magic dance across your face as you discover the wonders of this world. I want to watch you as you figure things out. I want to watch you process life, develop your thoughts. I want to know you. 
I want to know your passions. I want to watch you as you discover your God-given talents and gifts. And when you hide behind a screen, I miss out on all of that. And my time with you, well, it'd be over in the blink of an eye. I want to guide you into an understanding of life and who you are. Boys, kids today are starved for attention, true connection and relationship. I don't want you to feel starved. That's why I say no. I know that feeding the desire to play in your device is like giving you candy. It satisfies for a moment, but it provides no long-term nutrition. It does more harm than good. I don't want to look back when I'm out of the trenches of child training and regret a second I had with you. I don't want to merely survive. I want to thrive in this life with you. We're in it together. We're a family. Yes, when we're waiting in a doctor's office for an hour, it would be easier to quiet you with my phone. But if I did that, I fear I'd send you a message that says I'd rather hush you up than hear those precious words falling from your lips. I can't bear the thought of allowing you to miss out on the wonders and the mysteries of this world. And yet when you're transfixed on the screen, the beauty of this world will be lost to you. In every moment, beauty is waiting to be discovered. I don't want you to miss a second of it. I want you to be comfortable with yourself. I want you not to feel a constant need to be entertained and distracted. And if you stay behind a screen, you never have to experience just being you alone with your thoughts. I want you to learn to think, to ponder life, to make discoveries, to create. You've been gifted by God in unique ways. I want those to bloom, and they can't bloom in the glow of a screen. They need life, real life, to bring them out. I want you to be confident in who you are. I want you to be able to look people in the eyes and speak life into them. If I allow you to live behind a screen, you get little practice relating eye to eye. To truly know someone, you have to look into their eyes. It's a window into their heart. You see what can't be seen in cyberspace. That's the last bit. When I tell you no to devices, I'm giving you a gift. And I'm giving me a gift. It's a gift of relationship, true human connection. It's precious and a treasure. And you mean so much to me that I don't want to miss a second of it. Learning to be present to ourselves. Learning to be deeply present to our Creator. Learning to be present to one another. Jesus was the emo most emotionally healthy human who ever existed. And the people who follow Him are supposed to be like it. Ours is not a world that is intended to be escaped. Ours is a world that's intended to be redeemed and is being redeemed. And we, the people of God, want to be present for it. And we want to be part of it. This is the invitation of Jesus. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. If you are hungry and, and weary, Come to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us. You desire to give us the gift of presence. And here at the table, uh, we're present with you. We commune with you by your Spirit. More than anything, we just need to know that you're close. Like you've got an arm around our shoulder. And we need to rem remember that you care for us. And you're the one who made us, warts and all. 
as we grow comfortable in your presence, would you help us to grow comfortable in our own? Help us to love ourselves as you've loved us and love the men and the women, the boys and the girls who are a part of our life as we do that. God, I pray for all of us in this room who are burdened and exhausted and weary, and I pray that you give them the courage and the grit to act out that active verb of come, come to Jesus, take my yoke, be my apprentice. Oh, Jesus, that's our ambition, that's our desire as a church. Would you help us to obey and to heed your call? Amen.